Hey, if you have a Bible, turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, or 10 actually, and um, we're working our way through the book of Corinthians, and we've come to this section of Scripture where Paul is giving us a warning, and he's giving us a warning about temptation, and it got us asking the question around the office this week, what is temptation? So we hit the streets uh, and tried to find the most, uh, you know, credible sources we could to define this word for us, and this is what we came up with. That was awesome. I love the one, it's fun. (laughs) We could end the sermon right there. But we're at church, so let's read the Bible. All right. This is uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And Paul has given us a warning. And you know what's uh, great about our culture is we, well, I won't include you in this conversation this early in the sermon. I love to ignore warnings. I love to uh, pretend like they don't exist. (laughs) On the way here this morning, I came to a four-way stop, and I saw a car coming, uh, and they weren't slowing down, and they just blew right through the four-way stop. And it was this 20-something-year-old girl, nothing against women drivers yet, and she was texting and laughing as she just blew right through the four-way stop. She never even looked up and saw that I was sitting there, and I thought, isn't that, that's a great picture of how we love to distract ourselves and just blow through every warning uh, in our lives. So let's pause for a moment and give ourselves a chance to hear a warning and ask ourselves, what is it doing there? So, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the facts, brothers. Now, let's stop there. Because what Paul is about to do is he's about to give us a bunch of facts. And these facts are going to have a purpose for us this morning. So, here are the facts. Here are the facts. Our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. What is he saying there? Here are some facts. He's talking about when the Israelites left Egypt, and that when they left Egypt, I mean, you've you've seen or you've read the story of Moses going into Egypt and the plagues, and finally Pharaoh said, you know, I'm going to let... Uh, your people go, and Charlton Heston was up there, you know, let my people go. And, and so they're leaving uh, Egypt by the scores, and the Lord so blessed these people and so wanted them to know that he was their God and that he was with them that the plagues weren't enough, like turning the Nile into blood. That just wasn't enough. So one of the things that the Lord did, as it's mentioned in the text here, is he sent a cloud, and that cloud hovered over them during the day to shade them, And it actually also led them. It was a physical representation of God's presence with them to where when the the cloud moved, they moved with the cloud. So God was directing them. The second thing that he talks about in this passage is the sea. And you're pretty familiar. You know, they backed up to the Red Sea and Pharaoh had changed his mind. And they're sending all the armies to come and kill the Israelites. They had no place to go. They didn't know what was going to happen. All they could see was their pending doom, and God parted the Red Sea, and they went through the Red Sea. God was showing, I am your defender, and I can defend you in ways that you can't even possibly imagine because I'm supernatural. 
Then he said, baptized into Moses, which is talking really about God sent Moses. They were under his leadership, so they were baptized in his leadership. God didn't leave them without leadership. Talks about spiritual food, that God gave them manna. The story of they grew hungry and God sent manna at night and in the morning it was on the ground and he fed them constantly, showing that he was their provider again. And then the spiritual rock. If you've not heard the story, they were without water and God told Moses to tap a rock and water just flowed out of this rock. God was revealing himself in incredible ways. And we hear all those things and we go, okay, that's, those are Bible stories. Church, Bible stories, it's appropriate. But if I told you that I was working in my yard yesterday and accidentally hit the rock by my pond and out of it started flowing gold, what would you say? Or if I told you that everywhere I go, a cloud goes with me. Or if I told you every morning I go in my backyard and pick up my breakfast. You would question that because you would say, come on, i got to see that. And if you saw it, then you would say, wow, you are truly blessed because God has decided to show you more than anybody else in the world that he is with you every day and every moment. That's what they had. But, nevertheless, let's stop there. Because that very word right there says bad things are about to happen. Okay, they had all the blessings in the world, and yet something was wrong. And you know what? I'm just going to stop because I want to put you in this story because it's just like us, isn't it? We have all this good stuff. All, everything's going our way, and yet we find some way to sabotage it. Or we find something in it that we don't like. Or we find some way of being discontent with even the good things that we have. I mean, we read about it all the time. You know, we're football players or, you know, from... You know, they, they have all this money, and yet they're busted selling drugs, you know, like trying to get a little extra more cash. Like, when is it enough? Or people that are married to other beautiful people, and yet they're cheating, you know? Like, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger, what's up with that, with his maid? Like, okay, I'm not going to say anything. And I look at that, and I go, how could a guy who has that much power, that much fame, that much money decide that a good option for him to fulfill the needs in his life is to start having an affair with the nanny that lives in his house. But that's us too, isn't it? Seriously, we have the ability to be discontent with everything, no matter how good things are. Because there seems to be a hunger inside of us that nothing can touch or satisfy. It's almost like food and money and power are things that... that they, they seem to get close, but they don't completely get to that place. And so we become greedy for more. And no matter how much we have, whatever it is that you consider is worth having in your hands, no matter how much of it you got in your hands, there's something inside of you that just says, I just want a little bit more. Or I just want it a little bit better. The philosopher Horace said, he who is greedy is always in want. Isn't that interesting? Because I'm greedy. So God showers these people with blessing, but there's still this big yeah, but. And we're no different. Let's keep reading. Here's the yeah, but. God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Uh Uh-oh. That's not good. (laughs) 
God displeased scattered bodies. All right. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and get up to indulge in pagan revelry. Next. Uh, We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. Uh Uh-oh. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. That's even worse. And do not grumble as some of them did and they were killed by the destroying angels. This is getting bad. These things happened to them as an example and were written down as a warning for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. (laughs) Well, let's go back through these facts. Paul has given us the facts. God blessed them more than he's blessed any group of people since the history of man. And their results or their response to God's blessing in their lives were, well, they committed idolatry. Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. Maybe you remember this. And all the people started talking and say, where did Mo go? And they didn't know where he'd gone. And they said, wow, you know, this God thing doesn't seem to really work. Does anybody have a good idea? And somebody said, yeah, let's make a cow out of gold and let's call it God. And so they created this golden calf. What were they saying? God, you showered us with blessings and rescued us in a way that no one could have ever possibly imagined. But right now, you don't seem to be here. In other words, you don't work. So we'll come up with plan B. They created an idol. Then sexual immorality. We read in the Old Testament that the men in the tribe of Israel were discontent with Israelite women, and they came across a tribe called the Moabites, and they were loaded with women, and they were like, wow, here's some wives for us, and God had forbidden that they marry the Moabite women. And the men said, you know what, God? We know that you fed us manna from heaven. You brought us water from the rock, that you put the cloud over us by day and a fire by night. You took us through the Red Sea, but we can't trust you to give us wives. You can handle the rock water thing, but women are completely different, which is true. So they, went, they said, we're going to take this into our own hands. Then they tested the Lord. How did they test the Lord? They began to complain. We don't have enough to eat. We don't have the right food to eat. We don't have enough to drink. We don't know where we're going. We're hot. We're tired. And then finally, they began to question the leadership that God had placed over them. And Korah's rebellion, where they decided to choose their own leaders and tell Moses and Aaron, we're we're knocking you out. Verse 11. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So what Paul is saying in this text to us as New Testament believers is that there's a warning that temptation is coming. I'm going to tell you, temptation is coming to you guys. It's coming to me. And I think we like to think of temptation sometimes as, you know, we're tempted to eat chocolate late at night, which I hear is the worst time to eat chocolate, you know. Or, you know, we think of it as kind of the kid kind of mild thing. Or we think about temptation in the grossest sense. Like, you know, I was tempted to get hammered, uh, you know, the other night. Or, you know, public drunkenness or cheating on your spouse. Like, you know, we're tempted or murder, you know. 
that these big sins are stealing from Walmart. You know, big sins are like going to a Bon Jovi concert. Big sins that we're tempted to do. <laughs> Just say no to the Bon Jovi. Is that what Paul's talking about? Is he saying to us, hey, here's a whole list of things you should not do. And guess what? There's a weird thing in you that's going to want them because you can't get them. And when you want them, fight that temptation. I think he's saying something much deeper than that. I think that he's saying something uh, that's profound, that there is a lot at stake in the way that we as a community embrace what Paul's teaching here. Well, what's at stake? Is God saying that if you sin this morning, he's going to kill you? I mean, he killed a bunch of them. Is that what he's saying? Well, I don't think that's what he's saying unless the rest of us that are surviving here today are sinless. Is there anybody here that has not committed a sin? If you think you have, then that's the sin you're committing, your own pride and arrogance. Sin is very serious. In fact, God takes sin as seriously today as he did in the Old Testament. He believes that, that there, when there's sin, the wages of sin is death. But the powerful truth that we have on this side of the cross is that God still takes it seriously, but he took it seriously to the cross. That Christ went to the cross to die for my sins. In fact, he who knew no sin actually became my sin. That when Christ was on the cross, he was, he was becoming my sin. And what was God's view to my sin? There must be death. Punishment must be brought. Someone must pay. Justice must be served. And Jesus became all my sin and died. And through his resurrection now, we know that we are forgiven. That we're set free from sin's dominion in our lives. So if that's the case, that we are forgiven people, that there is no sin now that I can commit that's outside of the grace of God. In fact, when Christ died on the cross, he, didn't just, sin, he just didn't die for all the sins that I've committed up to this point. He's died for all the sins that I'm going to commit till the end of my day. If he died for all sin, then it's all the sins I'm even going to commit. So what's the big deal? We're forgiven. We can leave here today if we fall into temptation and we blow it. We're forgiven, right? What's at stake now? This is huge. Because God is after our hearts now. He desires good for us. And he longs for us to know who we are. And he longs for us to know who he is. I mean, let's think about what were we made for? If you go to verse 31 in chapter 10, it actually says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And what Paul is revealing is that our true nature as Christ followers and the true nature of what God created man to be before he fell in the Garden of Eden was to be creatures that gave glory to God in everything, that we were made to be glory givers. In fact, we were made to be worshipers. It's a part of who we are. Even people that would never even say there is a God, they are worshiping beings. It's like God has put his thumbprint right on us when he created us in the Garden of Eden. And that thumbprint is a thumbprint of worshiping. That's why it says in Romans chapter 14, it says whatever is not of faith is sin. It's defining sin as anything that's outside the scope of me trusting God for this. 
Meaning that my true nature, when I'm redeemed by Christ, when I'm brought back into right relationship with God, when the old is gone and the new has come, this new that has come, the nature of this new is to live by faith, which is my hands are open now. He's given me arms and hands by faith to receive the grace of God and give me all that I need for life and godliness. So here I am, this creature that was made to give God the glory. I'm made to live by faith. That is my true nature. And what he's saying here, what's at stake is, is that all sin is causing me to leave my true nature. That all sin is causing me to walk away from God, from faith. That God is everything to us. All sin is causing me to walk in a different direction than the true nature of what God created me to be. Verse 14 in that chapter says this, Therefore, After all this stuff, the facts, the examples, and the warnings, my friends flee idolatry. Why would he say that? And here's what I want you to consider this morning. All sin is idolatry. All sin is idolatry. Because all sin, at the core of its being, is saying to God, I don't trust you. I mean, think about it. (laughs) If you have ever had a desire to be first in your life, to be a leader, to be somebody who is, you know, top of the food chain and really, you know, experiencing success and leadership in your life, God has no problem with that. God just said through Jesus, he said, you know, if you want to be first, that's fine, but let me teach you in your new nature how to be first, and that's to serve everyone, is to be last. Is to humble yourself. A true first leader is someone who serves other people. When I hear that and I say, uh, yeah, that just, you know. We were at a wedding yesterday. Uh, some of us here, Jennifer Eden, who is on staff, got married yesterday. And as part of their ceremony last night, Brad, her husband, uh, during the service, washed her feet. And at our table, we were talking about it because where I was standing, I could see it. That he literally, after he washed one of her feet, he kissed her feet. And I made the joke of saying, you know, uh, no, I'm not going to tell you my joke because that would be inappropriate. But, because we're in church. But, you know, I'm looking at this foot washing and I'm like, really, is that the picture of leadership? That literally you're going to get up from here and you're going to live a life together that's going to exemplify the fact that you are washing each other's dirty feet. You're humbling yourself to the lowest task, that you're going to that part of the body that is filthiest among all else, and you're saying, let me have it, and I'll wash that. Bless you. When I refuse to go down that road of leadership, I'm saying to God, I don't believe you. But it's more than I don't believe you. Because if we stop there, that would be bad enough, but it gets worse. It's saying, I'm going to replace you with something else. In other words, if God is saying, come over in this direction, and I go, "Uh, you know what, I think I'm going to go in this direction. It's worse. It's not just, I don't want to hang with you right now. It's, I'm replacing you with something else. And then I'm going to put my hope in this new thing that I've replaced you with that it's going to give me what only you promise that you give. In other words, God, (laughs) wow, I don't believe you. You're a liar. 
You promised that in your hands is life. You know what? You're a liar. I'm going to go over here and get it from this. That's idolatry. Listen to what it says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, all of which is idolatry. Why would Paul say that greed is idolatry? Unless what I just said in describing that is true. But I want to caution you guys because, and let me take us down this little road here. All this stuff, like I can understand how lust is, can be idolatry. Like evil desires, ugh, don't know what those are, but certainly that's idolatry, you know. Sexual immorality, think of something gross. Oh, yeah, that's idolatry. You know, I can think of that. I want to challenge you to this, is the most insidious idols in my life. And this is, I was telling the worship team before we started, this sermon is hard to preach because, because God has been revealing to me. And it's just, this is the week I didn't want to be a pastor. Because as I started studying this, I started going, good Lord, I've got idols all over my life. I, they're everywhere. I feel like I'm like, have you ever taken a two-year-old to the grocery store and they're maybe a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a 30-year-old man that doesn't want to be there, all right? And you've got him in the cart, you know, and you're telling him to be quiet. Mommy's going to be through in just a minute, you know? And when you're taking a kid through the grocery store and they're bored, what do they do? They start seeing shiny things and they're going, ah. And they reach for it, and you're like, you're going to fall out of the cart. And they're like, I, I don't care. I want that. It shines. And they're reaching for it, and they start filling up your cart if they can get it. They look at it, and they get discontent with it. They throw it in the cart, and then they start reaching for more stuff. And you're constantly taking stuff out of their hands. And I, was, I realized this week that that's me, that God is pushing me through life. And I keep going, I don't want you. I want that right there. And what if you can't reach it? You start screaming. And when God takes it out of my hands, what do I do? What does the 3-year-old do? What does the 30-year-old do? You can't have that. They throw a fit. People think you're abusing your child. They call child services. Listen to what Tim Keller, because it's not the wicked things that are the most insidious idols in my life. It is the good things that become the biggest idols in my life. Tim Keller said, sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our lives on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. We started this service by saying, what you worship, you serve. What you serve you give your life to. That's why Martin Luther, he said that you have to break the first two commandments. You shall have no other God before me, and you shall make no idols. He says you have to break those two commandments first before you can break the next eight. Because whatever we worship, we serve. And whatever we serve, we give our lives to. Let me try to explain that, okay? Let me try to go there. Every temptation is tapping into something I love. I mean, I can just honestly tell you, I don't wake up in the mornings and go, Lord, why didn't you call me to clean septic tanks? 
Like, that would be so cool to crawl down in tanks and spray them out, you know, and smell like, you know, all that all day long. You know, we're not tempted to go in the direction of the things that we don't love. It's the things that we love that draw us in. And it takes good things, and it makes them ultimate things. Just like the Israelites, what did they want? They wanted safety. They wanted wives. They wanted food. They wanted security. They wanted good leadership. These are all good things. And yet, they twisted them into making them idols, believing that if they made them the ultimate things, it would give them what their heart most deeply desires. Let's take money, for example. I mean, money's a good thing, right? I mean, the Bible doesn't say money's evil. You know, it says the love of money is evil. Money's a good thing. But why do we stress out over money? I mean, think about it. Why do we stress? Like, when we have too little of it, we stress. And when we have too much of it, we stress. Right? Wouldn't that be a good uh, thing for all of us to experience? Man, I got way too much money. Like, I just don't know what to do with it all. Just stop and ponder that for a moment. But why do we stress? It's kind, of, it's kind of like money, isn't it? It's just what money is. I mean, we have this idea inside of us that it seems so natural for us to believe that if I had just a little bit more money, then things would be just a little bit better, wouldn't it? That we equate just a little bit more of this stuff makes the rest of this stuff just a little bit better. And if I have a lot more of this stuff, then it's going to make life a lot more better. That we just begin to believe that and accept that. But what if we really believed that everything I have is from the Lord? Like that successful person who stands up and says, well, I just have to give, you know, props to God because, you know, he did it all. Really? Is that true? Like, what you have, did God make sure that you have that? Is it true in Isaiah 26 where it says, uh, all that we've accomplished you have done through us? Is it true that what you have right now is what God has chosen to give you? Is that true? If you can accept that, let me ask you this question. Is it also true that what you don't have right now is what God has chosen not to give you? Oh, no. If that's true, and God has said, I will give you everything you need for life and godliness, then do you have everything you need for what God has called you to do? Is he the provider? Then see how subtle it is when I begin to stress out about money. What I'm really saying is, if I had a little bit more money, then I wouldn't have to stress. Or if I had a little bit more money, I would be happier Or if I had a lot more money, then I could fulfill all my dreams. And how money subtly slips in and becomes our Savior. But I can do that with everything. I can do that with uh, a job. I can do it with a ministry. I can do it with my friends. I can do it with my own sexuality. I can do it with everything. And where I will start to believe that if this was just a little bit more or a little bit better, then and it sneaks in and says, that could become my Savior. And when something threatens what we have made an ultimate thing, we lose it. In fact, it's a lot easier to go out and dedicate your life to making a lot of money than it is for you to question whether or not that's the God you should serve 
and say, I'm going to put it down and I'm going to serve the Lord. Paul calls sin idol worship because it takes us to the root of our sin. Whatever you look at and say, if I have that, then I will feel my life has meaning. There's your idol. So let's do a little heart investigation. Are you ready? What's your idol? Or should I, let me make that plural. What's your idols? For example, what do you, what are you afraid of? What creates fear in your life? Where I have a fear, if I follow it, it leads me to my hope. And what I have hope in, I believe can be my savior. For example, do you have a fear of being alone? Do you have a fear of being alone? If you have a fear of being alone, is it possible that you really believe that there's someone out in the world that if they would just find you and come into a relationship with you, then they would save you? That your idol really is this faceless, nameless person that exists somewhere out there that's going to come crashing into your life and make it all better? Because your greatest fear is being alone. How about are you afraid of being poor? So you believe that if you make enough money that it's going to rescue you from your deepest fears. How about are you afraid of failure? And you believe that you can actually achieve enough success in your life to feel meaningful, respected, and loved by others. Here's a good one. Are you afraid of being bored? I mean, seriously. Like, did you spend all last week at Bonnaroo and walk away and going, that filled me up. To live in a tent for a week, be covered in dust. Some of you are like, oh, yes, it did. (laughs) I know. Because sometimes our greatest fear is just being bored. And so what do we look for? Adventure becomes my Savior. I need an exciting life. I need it with purpose. Are you afraid of not being respected? So power becomes my Savior. I'm powerful enough that when I walk into a room, people respect me. Or I love this one. Are you uh, not just respected, but are are you afraid that your life is going to leave you without other people admiring your life? That when you die, nobody's going to tweet about you. Seriously. So what becomes your savior? If enough people know my name and enough people are impressed by me that when I walk into a room, they go, shh, look, it's them. And when you die, they're all going to tweet or whatever they do 30 years from now, you know? What motivates you? What is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Is that your savior? What is it that captures your imagination more than anything else? When you've got nothing to do and you can't get any signals on your iPad, and all you have to do is sit and wait for the plane to show up, what do you think about? What sneaks into your brain and you just think about? What captures your imagination more than anything else? Could those things possibly be idols that are seeking to steal away our heart? Okay. What do we do with it? Temptation. What do we do with temptation? The scripture says no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Meaning when we read about the Israelites, hey, guess what? We're just like them. We're no different from them. And it says, well, what, Nate, man, we're in big trouble then because they failed. 
then certainly we're going to fail too. It's kind of like when Luke Skywalker got thrown down into the pit, you know, and he sees all the bones everywhere. Like, what makes you think you're any different from the bones? They're going to crush you too. Except it says in this passage, God is faithful. God isn't going anywhere. So the first thing I want to encourage you to, if you've, if you've identified some of your idols this morning, is to name those, those idols and realize that God has not left you in them. When we're tempted, God doesn't fold his arms, take a step back, and go, let's see how this person's going to handle this. God is right there in the middle with us. God isn't like the overprotective parent that is watching their child play t-ball for the first time, you know, and running along the bases with them, you know, but doesn't get involved in the game. God is in the game. He is present with us. He said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. If that's true, then God knows more about my idols than even I know about them. Those sins that you feel like sabotage you, which under the root of them has a deep idol that you are worshiping and serving and giving your life to. God sees that. And when you fall in that sin, guess where God is? He's right there with you. God doesn't go, uh-oh, that's, that's too ungodly. I better get away from here. You know, I'll come back when you're through with that sin. When you go to church and you repent, that's when I'll come back to you. Uh, okay, are, are you cleaned up now? Oh, whew, that was scary. You know, I may have to send the destroying angel over to your house, you know. That's not God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. He's already made us holy. He's made us pure. That we stand in the position of Christ. So God never leaves me. He's very present with me. And if I understand that, that when I'm facing that temptation, when I'm facing that sin, and I know that God's right here with me, God says one simple thing through Paul here. He will provide an escape. An open door. Here's what I want to challenge you today. I want you to consider that every temptation you face in your life is an invitation to worship. What are you talking about? Every temptation you face in your life is an invitation to worship, either to worship your idols or to worship the Lord. Because if we're gonna if we're gonna say, hey, this temptation happens, and now it's a it's it's a fire mark. It's a place that explodes and welcomes me into the presence of God of saying, God, I need you. I need your escape. I need you to rescue me from this idol that I deeply love. I need you to set me free. So we open our eyes and we see the temptation. We open our eyes and see that the Lord is present with us in the temptation. We acknowledge our need for the Lord to step in and give us a way out, and we cry for help which is a beautiful song of worship. Would you imagine just for a minute, the Israelites were slaves for 400 years. They didn't know what freedom smelt like, tasted, looked like. They didn't know what to do with it. And yet here they were on the run from their oppressors. How many generations? Slavery was all they'd ever known. And when they were walking out of Egypt and saying, now we're tasting our freedom for the first time, and they came up to the Red Sea, and then they saw the clouds of the chariots, they were like, what? Oh, no. What were we thinking? How could we possibly ever dream to escape this? We deserve this now. They're grumbling and turning to Moses. They couldn't possibly imagine the rescue that God had in store for them. 
It's the same for us. God is calling you to freedom. And in calling you to freedom, he's saying he is pursuing our hearts, that we are free people. And our backs may be up against the Red Sea, and we may not see any way out of this. We may not be able to see how I can overcome that sin, how I can know freedom in my life from that thing that has plagued me and poisoned me, that thing that I love but I don't want to love, the things that I do that I don't want to do, the things that I should do but I don't do. And the Lord is saying to you this morning, he's after your heart. He says, turn to him. And when we turn to him, he shows us stuff that only he can do. That's why it says in verse 19 of Psalm 77 that Paul read at the beginning of the service, your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there, but he knew. So what's the pathway he has for you this morning? With the idols that so easily come in and entangle themselves with the mesh of the love of your own heart. He knows. So as we begin to uh, sing in just a second, I want to ask you this question. Do you know your idols? The places in your life that you said to God, I'm going to replace you. I love this better. And as we sing, and as we worship the Lord in a time of corporate confession, will you put those down and ask the Lord to come into your life and part the Red Sea? To do what only God can do and set you free from those things that have sabotaged you, so easily entangled you, and robbed you of the joy of knowing God's presence and power in your life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that you are good to us and you are faithful. That you have not forsaken us, you have not turned your back on us. That you are drawing us unto yourself. Even this morning, Lord, that you would be exposing the idols that we would so easily give our hearts to. Not just those things that are obvious, but Lord, the things that are so good. That are replacing you. That we have more trust in them than we do in you. Set us free, Lord, that we can worship you and therefore serve you and give our lives to you so that we may know life and life to the full. Lead us in that way, in Christ's name, amen.